And as it turns out, many of our most familiar elements and activities in life, right? So especially those that we think of as games, use some sort of element of gambling. And then depending on how you define gambling, I can make a case, and I do particularly, that you gamble in pretty much every single decision that you make in your life. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Brett Abarbanel. Brett is the executive director of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas's International Gaming Institute and holds academic research and teaching positions both at UNLV and at the University of Sydney. In her own words, Brett spends her time digging into the world of gambling and games, asking questions about esports and video games, technology, behavior, and policy. She's particularly interested in the question of if all of us are gambling all of the time. If you want to learn more about Brett's work, you can find the International Gaming Institute at unlv.edu slash IGI. Okay, so why are we talking about gambling on the Emergency Mind podcast? Well, it's because the answer to Brett's question of are we always gambling is really important and interesting when it comes to performing under pressure. There's a lot to learn about things like decision-making, risk-award trade-offs, and the illusion of control in this mashup. Admittedly, there's a bit of a technical introduction to this episode, but it's well worth the lift as we get deeper into it. Before we get started, a quick reminder. If you want to join individuals and teams around the world who are working to perform better during times of crisis and emergency, there are so many ways to get involved with the Emergency Mind Project community, and we would love to have you. The easiest way to get started is to try our free crisis skills test, which you can find at emergencymind.com. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode with Dr. Brett Abarbanel. I hope you enjoy. All right, Brett, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is wonderful to get to see you again and and to work with you on something like this. I cannot imagine our younger selves when we were in college, you know, up at three in the morning, wandering around doing whatever would have imagined that we would be here doing this today. So thank you to our past selves and thank you to to you for coming on. Oh, it's so my pleasure. I I don't want to date us too much, but were podcasts a thing when we were for that age? Is that nothing? I'm going to politely decline to answer that question. Politely decline. Yeah. Surely they existed. We just didn't sure. really know about it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. iTunes was around. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> <clears throat> In any case, <laughs> I hope what we're going to get into over this conversation is thinking a lot about uncertainty, risk, and managing the difference between sort of like theoretical expectations of stuff and practical applications of things all of which is really uh, really core to a lot of what we do under pressure at the Emergency Mind Project. But but why don't we start with something you and I were sort of kicking around before we turned on the record here, which is which is just what what is gambling and and why are you studying it? Absolutely. So let's do this because I find it so much easier to talk about this kind of thing when we think about it in your frame of reference, right? Mm. So I want you to do this and then anybody who's listening, take a moment what do you think of first when I say the word gambling? Las Vegas, for sure, and 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 poker and and slot machines, probably slot machines. I'd go with slot machines, right? So, so usually, you know, people will say like a casino game, right? Sure. So, slot machine, poker. These days, especially in the United States, sports betting comes up mm-hmm. quite a lot. But occasionally, right, someone might think of something else, like when when you watch those sports. How often do they flip a coin at the beginning of the match? Sure. Even basketball, right? Like we got rid of the, the jump start at the beginning. 
because we didn't want people to be quite so close together. Now, you know, there's flip coins even at basketball games from time to time. When you play a board game, you roll a die or take a card off the top of the deck, right? Like Candyland. Everybody's favorite joke. And occasionally people will actually answer this and I don't have to tell everybody the joke, right? So when I say gambling, did you think of marriage? Nice. So, right. So all of this kind of comes into whatever it is that pops into your head. Gambling is in some ways totally very defined and in other ways a bit more of kind of a nebulous, complex thing. So you asked about how I started kind of finding my way into this as an actual person. I first started thinking about gambling and how it's kind of in everyday life really about 15 years ago. Gambling had been part of my life prior to that. Dan, as, as you know, I used to play in a poker game with several of our mutual friends. Exactly. Yeah. Literally an underground game because it was in a basement. So technically, right, right it was underground. Uh, even if the Brown uh, Police Department used to walk through every now and then and just wave at us as we sat yeah. down together. But really, how did that manifest in our everyday lives? I really started thinking about it probably 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more, playing World of Warcraft at the time. I was an enhancement shaman. I had just switched from elemental shaman. And so I was hanging out with my brand new Fists of Fury set. They were really cool. They were on fire. And I had these brand new shoulder plates and they had like these lightning blue flames that rose out of them. And I looked extremely cool. And I was also extremely cool in real life, too. Clearly, there's a parallel between my ability to look like that in game and, and, and the shoulder pads I wear every day in real life. Um, and to show off, I would hang out in Ironforge. And one of the things you could do at Ironforge is buy stuff for the game, right? There's shops there. There's an auction house. So right Wait, around that time. Sorry, what, what is Ironforge for those of us Iron, that don't necessarily Iron wear Forge flaming gloves on a regular basis? It's one of the capital cities in the original uh, World of Warcraft game. And uh, you, you would go there when you needed, for example, a rest from, I don't know, uh, killing monsters, right? Or whatever it was you were doing <laughs> during the game. Perfect. So around that time there was this new feature that was released in the game. So some characters, depending on whatever traits and things that you would train up, you could create something. And this thing was called the Mysterious Fortune Card. And you could buy unused cards from that auction house in Ironforge or other major cities in the game. And the average purchase price for these was like 150 gold, something like that. So for reference, right, for those of you who didn't spend a ton of time trying to impress a guy that luckily you later married by playing World of Warcraft, <laughs> the, the game money was silver and gold. So uh, and like bronze, right? So 100 bronze for one silver, 100 silver for a gold. And so you could buy this card for about 150 gold and it ranged, right? It's an auction house. The price fluctuates a little bit. Now, when you used that mysterious fortune card, it gave you a little fortune, right? You're so amazing and lucky you're going to be a rich genius. Uh, and it gave you some in-game money, right? And that money ranged from about 10 silver to 1,000 gold. Might have even been 5,000 gold. My memory is starting to get a little hazy now, 15 years off. 
Well, this whole concept, though, that that piques my interest, right? To me, this isn't just a fortune teller. It's a, it's a lottery ticket. I'm spending some amounts and I'm getting a wide range of options as to what that monetary outcome is, even if that monetary outcome is in-game money. But then, you know, like I, I stopped myself for a second, right? I spend my whole life in gambling. 15 years ago, I was I was had been playing poker pretty regularly. I was I had a getting a degree that really focused on gambling. I was thinking about this all the time. But what might somebody else think about this mysterious fortune card? If you if you flip this and get some amount of gold, is that gambling? Would you think of this as a lottery ticket just like I did? The answer Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. yeah. The answer might be yes, it also might be no. You know, some people might think about this and say, yeah, Brett, whatever. I mean, it's gold in World of Warcraft. Who cares, right? It's So there's, the, you know, it's various answers. And are there other instances where this starts to exist in everyday life, where you have a chance mechanism? Is that gambling? And as it turns out, many of our most familiar elements and activities in life, right? So especially those that we think of as games, use some sort of element of gambling. And then depending on how you define gambling, I can make a case, and I do particularly, that you gamble in pretty much every single decision that you make in your life. But you, Dan, right, you think about gambling differently than I do. We both think about gambling differently than every other person who would be listening to this podcast because the nature and nurture that, that brought you where you are today influences the lens through which you view everything in the world, right? This is how we are unique as humans. So you think about gambling differently because you, you know, a little Talmudic levity here, right? You don't see things as they are. You, you see them as you are. And that's kind of a theme that always tends to come up when I talk about this. Because the, when, when you think about what gambling is from a general social perspective, pretty, it can be a pretty specific thing in terms of definition, but that definition is super broad. So I like to give the following definition. Gambling is risking something of value on an outcome that's uncertain. Hmm. So uh, you, you said a second ago that, that we're, we're gambling in, in basically all of the decisions we make, that there's some element of chance in all of the decisions that we make. Mm -hmm. So are you drawing a distinction between things where there are chance outcomes that are involved in it. There's some sort of a, a random or stochastic process that helps us, that helps arrive at the conclusion and things where we are purposefully risking something on the outcome of that stochastic thing. Yes, because whenever we have those sorts of random moments in our lives, mm -hmm. even if it's a moment where you're making an active decision, you're still making that choice based on potential randomness, right? You mentioned this sure. process. And there is a potential risk involved there. So let me give a, a kind of pretty straightforward example that's not based on my history of World of Warcraft, right? So something super common. The, you, you walk outside your door, get in your car, and you head to the grocery store. I think a lot of folks probably do this. Maybe you walk to the grocery store if you live in a more urban area. Right. So you you walk through the doors of the grocery store and you start to grab some of the essentials that you need. So uh, like I hope I'm not offending any vegans here. So eggs, right, uh, bread and, you know, for, for a lot of folks, right, those chocolate chip cookies over there in the bakery, they're looking real good. So we're just going to throw those in the basket, too. I mean, that's a pretty generic definition of something or example of something that we might do in everyday life. 
And was any of that scenario gambling, right? When you when you walk out the door, what sort of chances are you taking outside sure. the safety and comfort of your home when you're driving in your car? I mean, Dan, you're in L.A. Surely it's not like a, a completely safe activity to be driving around in the sure. in L.A. traffic. Are you gambling with your health on the sugar content of the chocolate chip cookies, which, you know, may have gone straight into yeah. the stomach between the time you left the grocery store and arrived back at home, right? But here's the thing. Was the gamble worth it? Hmm. So is it just that, because obviously most of us aren't, you know, there are certain circumstances and we can nudge towards those as we keep going where those decisions are really highlighted, right? Where they're really high stakes decisions, where the outcome of one thing or another really swings a lot. So, and maybe we're starting to get into taxonomy here. So there, there's some decisions where the outcome doesn't really matter and sure you're gambling, but who cares, right? Yeah. These are free rolls or something like that, right? Or there's decisions where the outcome is wildly different and really does matter where you care a lot about it. And there's also probably ones where the risk threshold is below, or there's some risk where it's some below some threshold. So functionally, you don't really care about it, right? You've already made the decision that, okay, I'm going to leave my house, yep. right? Because, you know, I want to do that. Yeah. And so I'm going to accept some of the risks that come in there. And any interestingly, even if you don't really know what those risks are, you've sort of bundled them all up and said, well, all right, I'm going to take whatever chance this is. Yeah. And I think that that's an important thing to consider because, again, you know, I'm talking about this in terms of gambling. Mm -hmm. Tons of people in life would never define this as gambling. It, it would be risk taking. And I think that a big part of this is just sort of this difference between social and legal definitions of gambling. Mm -hmm. So much of how we view gambling as people is based on how they're legally defined, right? How gambles are legally defined. So let me just run through that super briefly, because I think yeah. that that also helps frame this in terms of how people think about it. So there's three elements that are pretty much all part of the legal definition of gambling in pretty much every jurisdiction around the world. The amount of weight put on each of these three is a little different everywhere you go, but the, all three are pretty much always present. Yeah. So the first is the concept of consideration. So this is the cost to participate, right? What do you have to ante up to be part of this gamble? Now, almost everywhere you go around the world, this is very specifically defined as money or money's worth. So it, there has to be some sort of monetary value attached to it. So what's money's worth to you then, right? It's, it's probably different than what money's worth mm. is to me. It's probably different to a whole variety of other folks, right? One man's trash is another man's treasure is a really nice way of thinking about sure. how we all think really differently about money. But if what you're risking can be exchanged for money, that's really that cost to participate when it yeah. comes to legal gambling. And then the next element is the piece that, that we've been talking about, right, is, is risk. It's chance. There has to be some element of uncertainty that's involved here. Because chance, right, it's not exclusive to this legal definition of gambling. It's like we've described, it's present in almost everything that we do. And it's been present in games, not just in gambling, for almost as long as games have existed. So I have a super fun cocktail party fact, if you are interested, Dan. Do you know why dice have little pips on them instead of Arabic numerals? I have no idea. So it's because we've been using dice to apply like chance to games or predictions since before Arabic numerals were created. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
like the idea of rolling the bones that that sure. literally comes from when dice were made out of knuckle bones from sheep and goats and that sort of thing. So this has been part of what we do as humans for ages, right? This whether it was trying to predict the future, originally rolling the bones was really the idea of trying to do fortune telling. It wasn't even the <laughs> concept of gambling at that point. And within that, then, you know, like other card games, right? So it's not just blackjack or poker. When you play solitaire, for example, right? Chance is whichever card is coming up off the deck next. And then that final element is prize. So putting something up for risk, there is a risk of some chance, and there's something to be won or lost at the end there. So again, just like that cost to participate, in legal definitions, usually we're talking about money or money's worth. And here's where I like to make people think about what worth is. And that's where we start to get into this idea of gambling is kind of everywhere that mm. we look. Because what's a value to you, right? How, how do you define value? Is it measured by money, right? Do you value your time? Do you value your energy? Do you value your social rank? For example, if you have a game of some sorts, does that assign a social prize? When we were talking before you were recording, we were talking about how old we feel versus, you know, maybe how old we actually are. And this this example is more of an example of how old we are, Dan. <laughs> but, you know, do you remember, for example, did you, did you ever play video games at like a local pizza parlor or something like sure. that, right? Did they have Absolutely. like Batman in the corner, right? And so you put a coin into the machine because coins still existed then, right? We would use cash and not Venmo. And, uh, right. And then you, you put the coin in, you press start and you move the joystick around and you maneuver Pac-Man through the maze and you get the cherries and you're so excited because you get some extra points and the ghosts are getting too close and you're getting like more and more and more nervous. But then you get the big dot and you can turn around and go eat the ghosts. And it's so much better. And you persevere and you get a really high score and you enter your initials at the top and there you sit at the top of the leaderboard, that feeling, that feeling of being at the top, that rank, does that feel good to you? Do you value that feeling when you feel good? And as we start to think about gambling and, and risk-taking, when you come out of a major risk with a very specific feeling, right? If that feeling is a really, really, really good feeling, or if that feeling is just absolute misery, that's something that, that you value. Most people don't like feeling miserable, right? You don't want to lose that. And we, usually when we think about gambling, we, we think about like monetary loss in terms of a feeling of being miserable. But there's other ways that that manifests. And so in this risk-taking thing, when I talk about gambling, you know, money is involved when I talk about kind of the legal pieces of this. But when we talk about gambling in everyday life, Usually money's not involved at all. What we're risking is another thing that we value. And that's something that can still be won or lost. Even when we talk about a kind of calculated risk taking that's regularly involved, that's part of the puzzle as well. I mean, that's it's not absent from gambling. Think about blackjack or poker. We're making yeah. active decisions here and making taking calculated risks. So this all still kind of comes into play with what this is. And that's why I like to say that we pretty much gamble in everything that we do. Thank you for for explaining that and exploring that. That's such a perfect wedge into this because I think one of the things I was really excited to talk to you about in this context, and I'm going to swing us back into performance under pressure with, I think, this little bridge here, 
which is that like when we think about all of the decisions that we're making as individuals and teams, whether that's in the emergency department or on a battlefield or any of these other spaces that we're operating, right? We're actually doing all three of these things in one form or another, right? There is a cost to participate. And usually that is our time or maybe even our life, depending on where we're participating. There's definitely the elements of chance and risk and things that are both involving sort of bounded and unbounded uncertainty, which I hope we can talk about in a second. And then there's a thing that we're wagering on, which is the outcome of this event. And, and that is either success or failure of operation, or it is the you know life or something of a person that we're working on or working with. And most of the time, we're not thinking about it as those things being linked together, mm -hmm. right? The way you're describing it. We're not thinking about it as a package that involves a gamble. We're thinking, well, we've already, you know, we do this. This is what we do. We've already put the, you know, the money on the table, so to speak. And we know there's risk and we sort of have an idea of the outcome, but, but we often decouple these things from each other. So it's interesting to think about them grouped together in the idea of, of a gamble like this. Yeah. I'm curious, Dan, because I, when we first started talking about doing this, I was totally upfront, right? I, I'm not an ER doctor. Sure. In fact, a lot of what we do, I'm very clear, you know, we're not curing cancer. We're not necessarily saving lives. We, we, we do a lot of work uh, at, at my institute with regard to things like problem gambling and addiction. And this actually sure. kind of gets into the question that I'm going to ask is, are there discussions within your field about potential addiction to this sort of risk taking? Because that's something that comes up a ton in gambling. I don't think that there's discussions around addiction to it in the way that you're describing. I, I think that we certainly self-select into emergency medicine for folks that thrive in universes where you have to make really high stakes decisions. Um, and I think there's a parallel to that in a lot of the other groups that we work with as part of the Emergency Mind Project. People that you know, get into these moments where, where where it is, you know, life or limb and the decision is up to them in one sort or mm -hmm. another and, and they want to be there. Right. We often we often talk about sort of the paradox of saying, well, hey, you know, I don't want anybody to get hurt. I don't want anybody to be in a car accident. But if they do, I want them to come to me because yeah. I want to be on the line trying to take care of them. That's what, you know, that's that's what I got up in the morning to do. And that's what I'm gonna go out there and, and get after. And so I, there is a a certainty to that, that that you you know you want to be a part of, and in some cases it can form into a bit more of an identity, right? Where you're like your identity is in part you making these kinds of decisions well, right? That's how you see yourself as a person, as part of a team, which is which is why I think it's so interesting to start thinking about well, what do we know separate from the domain of mm -hmm. high pressure work? What do we know about just how humans make these kinds of decisions? Because that's not something we get into a lot. And something that I think is really worth exploring. You know, when we tend to focus on uncertainty and decision making and risk taking, you know, we talk about risk mitigation. We talk about what is essentially some form of like wildcatting, right? Where you're like, okay, how much am I willing to pay to make a little bit of data available to me about a particular outcome, mm -hmm. right? And you're sort of like figuring out your way through a lot of that space. But we don't really talk a lot about any of the ways that the human brain interfaces with these types of decision making right and yeah. so maybe that's worth getting into what, what do we know about that right like as you as you think about your work and and what do we know about how humans face problems like this 
So within my field, that does tend to be covered. And a lot of it really focuses on how do people get engaged with making these sorts of decisions? And at what point is that hearing into really the the addiction space, which is actually why I asked, you know, is, yeah, is sure. this something that's discussed? And as you describe, it's really interesting because what you're describing to me sounds so similar to people who seek out risks through things like like free climbing, right? And, yeah. and highly other, what I'll call highly risky sports, though I'm sure many that would disagree with me to the right, it's not necessarily incredibly risky. And I think that that really plays into trying to understand how a lot of this works. The other thing that really jumped out at me when you were describing some of this is the concept of insurance and why all of us have insurance. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's an easy answer out there, which is, well, I have insurance because I'm told I have to have it if I want to have my car registered, for example, right? That's a requirement there. But in essence, insurance is like, it's in some ways it, it is gambling because it's kind of the antithesis of gambling and sure. that it's just hedging a bet versus making uh-huh. a bet. So when people start to kind of get into the space and think about okay, what are these types of decisions that we're making? So much of my field, again, I mean, so I'm actually not transitioning to this, right, is so, so much of my field is focused on the point at which those decisions become out of control. So yeah. you're making the choice to place a wager, but the point at which that wager or that gamble, that risk, is beyond your ability to stop mm-hmm. it, right? And sometimes that's a monetary thing. Sometimes we realize that and we've completely run out of money or or chances, right? I think would be a good way of of translating that, the opportunity to take that risk. And I think that there are a few moments here that would translate well into what you do. And tell me if I'm wrong, because I I don't want to pretend to know all about your own field, in which, for example, like if if you're on a shift, right? So how long, for example, some of these shifts last? I mean, you're not doing like a four-hour shift, right? There's a point at which there's exhaustion that kicks in. And at that point, are you you reaching a moment at which you don't have much left in you, in your tank, to be able to take the risks that you maybe could have taken at the beginning of that shift? And so what decisions are you making? At what moment are you maybe not making the same sharp decisions you may have been making, you know, Mm -hmm. 12 hours ago to be able to continue down that track? And so one of the things that we talk about is that loss of control and what ties into that or what tends to really tie into that quite a lot that I think would be great to get into is the illusion of control. And that's something that we regularly talk about in the gambling field in the sense that in our field, it's the idea of thinking that you can control the outcome of the game. Mm -hmm. And I also want to emphasize here, every time I see the, say the game, I'm thinking about, you know, my own framework and my own field. I do not want to suggest in any way that I consider what, what you do to be a game. Like clearly this is a much more, you know, high stakes focus with this. So I want to make sure I'm clear on that. <laughs> no, I think that that's well said and, and, you know, obviously appreciated. I also think that a lot of what we do has structures of games in it. Right. Like, yes, the decisions are important, but it, I think it's doing it disservice by pretending it's something else in a lot of ways. 
right? Yeah. Because we make decisions under uncertain conditions that have chance outcomes associated with them. Some mm -hmm. of it is skill, how we make those decisions and apply those logic. And some of it is chance, and that's just the reality of it. And so a, a lot yeah. of, even in high stakes things like this, really do have the structure of games. And it's worth exploring what we know about games in order to bridge into that. But Okay, but, but let's keep driving on this illusion of control because yeah, yeah. I think this is really important. So a, and so this illusion of control, what, what gets really interesting about it is because it's not just something that kind of happens to you, right? It's also visualized. We, we put it into popular culture regularly. There are a couple of really great examples of this. One of my favorites is from Maverick. So TV show and then movie from like 1994. Not to, again, make us sound too old over here, Dan. But part of that movie, it's, it's Mel Gibson plays a poker player and uh, you know, Joey Foster's in it as well. And, but, but Mel Gibson's character, the, the whole movie shows him regularly practicing with a deck of cards, trying to like will a specific card to the top of the deck. And, and it shows him like doing a very, very concentrated movement where he's holding his hand over the, the deck, you know, with his, his hand is kind of clenched up, trying to focus on this race. He's pulling the ace of spades to the top. He can do it. He can do it. He can do it. And then he pulled the top card off of the deck. He holds it to his forehead and looks in the mirror. And it's like the seven of hearts, right? <laughs> and, and this happens a few times until, and I, I think that a movie that is now almost 30 years old, I can give away. It's not even the ending. Part of a game in the middle of the movie. <laughs> where he does this again in the moment of truth. He needs the ace of spades to be able to beat all the other ridiculously designed hands of this poker game, which very common in films, by the way, unlikely outcomes. And he, he doesn't, he shows that control. He's mm -hmm. concentrating, he's hovering his hand over the card. He can do it, he can do it, he can do it. And then of course it's slow-mo because it's a Hollywood movie. He slowly peels the card up off the table and tosses it into the center. It's the ace of spades. He's done it. She has controlled the card that is there that he needs and he's hmm. made here. And it's providing, you know, I, I, I describe this really in depth. And clearly you watch in your life, you roll your eyes a little bit. Oh my God, come on. That's not happening in real life. But we, we come across these situations regularly where we feel we have control. And often it's an, a situation in which you might feel that you are responsible for an event where there's literal or no causal link of you to that event itself. And that can manifest in some very unhealthy ways. And a lot of it tends to center around when we make decisions in risky situations. So that can be anything as, as absurd as thinking you can pull the ace of spades off the top of the deck, which you'll do about one every 52 times, unless you throw the jokers in there as well. But it can also be a situation in which you're truly looking at life or death, where you feel perhaps that you have more control in a positive manner, right? Maybe you're overexhausted, to use the earlier example, and, and you're going into a situation where you make a decision, and, and it is a life or death situation. And then maybe it's a feeling of guilt that comes out of that as well. That can happen yeah, quite often, certainly... these illusions of control, because when you shatter that illusion, that's a very formative moment as well. Hmm. That's yeah. That's that's so important. And you see a lot of folks in and around these high stakes universes that that live with that. You know, live with that. What if I could have done something differently? Like if only I'd sort of you know changed one thing or another. As if there was the ability to control a lot of things that that we really don't. Mm -hmm. 
And there's a lot of people who's, to, to use another gambling metaphor here, right? There's a lot of people who's, who arrive in the emergency department and their die was cast before they arrived in the department, mm -hmm. right? And their outcome is death. And there's yeah. nothing that we or any other team can do to, to work on that. Mm -hmm. Part of our job is to accept that reality, accept the limits of our control on reality, and try to learn from where we are able to learn in the middle of that circumstance, right? So, it, so the analogy here would be for us like, okay, we can't, you know, you can't save everybody, you can't save this person, but can you get better at your craft while you're working on it? Yeah. And I've, I've never thought about that as the illusion of control in that in in that phrase, but I think that's a really good. A really good fit. And when you have that illusion of control present, right? And sometimes it's, you don't you really don't even think about it, right? Like maybe you carry on a good luck charm. Sure. That might be something that contributes to an illusion of control. Oh, I did this because I found a lucky penny today. Uh -huh. And I do that all the time. I'll pick up a lucky penny if I find one on the ground and, you know, stick it in my pocket. And I'm like, oh yeah, today is a great day. I got to go buy a lottery ticket, right? Which, by the way, is quite an effort in Nevada because we don't have a lottery. I have to drive to the California state line if I want to yeah. buy a lottery ticket. Yeah. But with that illusion of control, it's, it can be tied to overreach in risk taking mm. because we think that we, not just that we have more control over the situation, that's kind of sure. parallel to that concept, but it has that capability of being incorrect in your assessment of whatever probabilities might be present in potential outcomes. So because I because I think I have an illusion of control in one way or another, I'm likely to all like change my estimates of the risk and chance that I, of the game I'm playing and therefore make decisions that are even more illogical than I might have made otherwise. Am, am I reading that right? I would say illogical would often be kind of the I guess the proper term there. Uh -huh. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. So, for example, thinking that you have more of that illusion control, that might also manifest and in, say, increased confidence. And that sure. might be the very thing that gets you to the point of success. Whereas previously, the sure. assessment, if you went kind of raw on numbers, you might have just said, you know what, to use your words, right, the die is cast. This just isn't going to happen mm -hmm. no matter how hard I try. So there, there is a potential positive element in this as well, yeah. and it's just a matter of what the situation is, right? We can't dictate that until sure. it's in it. Yeah, but I think you're you're getting at a lot of stuff that we're trying to figure out. How do we teach this? How do we support people as they're mm -hmm. learning these kinds of things? And how do we encourage that confidence, that bias towards action, and that bias towards you know attacking a problem set? And also not letting people drift too far away into that illusion of control over it, right? And that throttle is a really challenging thing to instill in somebody as they're learning to perform under these high yeah. stakes moments like this. I also wonder if we're getting a little bit here, you know, you talk about like the, the good luck charm kind of an idea, right? Like a, a fascinating parallel for us there is that there's all these things that we do that maybe you only get to do once or twice in your whole career. You only have the opportunity mm -hmm. to actually play that game in large yeah. quotes once <laughs> or twice, right? Like we might call that a, a halo event, for example, a high acuity, low occurrence event yeah. where you have to get something right. You only have one or two shots to do it. Mm -hmm. And so you'll do a thing, you'll do an emergency crike or whatever. And then you'll come back and be like, guys, I just did this halo event. 
Here's how it went. Here's what I learned from it, in quotes. And now let's all go practice that. But did you actually, you know, succeed at doing this thing because you succeeded at it? Or or was this just sheer luck that you happened to get it correctly? And then did you accidentally pick up a good luck charm? Like, well, I did it while my left toe was tapping on the ground. So therefore, all of us will do left toe taps every time anybody attempts this. And these things just sort of propagate through the universe because mm-hmm. there's not enough counterexamples. There's not, there's not enough times playing the game to figure it out. This is maybe some version of the one-armed bandit problem, sort of, right? Where you're sort of like sussing your way out of this. But like, how do you, I don't know, there's like six questions in there. One of which is like, how do you understand if you're actually using a good luck charm or if you've discovered something about the reality of the game? And another one is how do you teach people to appropriately throttle their illusion of control? So I don't know, take, take your Ooh. pick. <laughs> well, the, sec- the second one is a really hard one. So let's start with the first one. <laughs> okay. How do, how do you suss out, you know, what what's good luck charm and what is... Uh, what, what was sort of the proper activity in order to to get to that? Part of it is exactly what you've described, where you do get together in a group after the event and talk about whatever it was, because then you can get all that feedback. You know, to go all the way back to what I was talking about when I was defining gambling, and I said, you know, what do you think of, here's what other people might think of, here are a ton more examples, is that, you know, we don't think about things as they are, right? We don't see them as they are. We see them as we are. And so it can be incredibly helpful to get diverse perspectives, even if those diverse perspectives are people are, in, for example, the same position as you, right? If, you, if you're if you an ER doctor, yeah, you probably should be talking to other ER doctors about this. But everybody comes to that position from a different background. They've all had different roles that they've had to play over the years. And so that can really help figure out, you know what, maybe the left toe tap didn't actually contribute to the success. But maybe my my choice to make the incision here for this, uh, and uh, forgive no, all no, the, perfect, all the perfect, yeah. Like, to make this specific incision, that was one of the major sure. reasons why this was a success. And so I'm a huge proponent of getting feedback on these decisions and and having that kind of element of of socialization and. Mm-hmm group contribution to figuring out, okay, what about this made it particularly successful? What about this helps us beat the game, if you will? And what about this was just, you know, a confounding variable that happened to also be present at the same time? And there's a really interesting link between what you're saying and the idea of safety too, which is a concept that we're sort of exploring more and more Mm -hmm. along the podcast, you know, which is that you're not suggesting you'd the, the older school way, the safety one way of doing it is only analyze things with bad outcomes, mm. right? And therefore you will only learn like the M&M process is you out, you know, you analyze yeah. things with bad outcomes. The safety two mindset would instead espouse analyzing essentially everything, but particularly things where there are unexpected outcomes yeah. from one direction or another, whether that's a good unexpected or a bad unexpected. But to really leverage what you're describing, which is to superimpose diverse viewpoints on trying to figure out what was a good luck charm and what was a real feature of the game. Mm-hmm. You probably, correct me if I'm wrong, but you really have to use both the good outcomes and the bad outcomes in order to figure that out. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it ties into the idea of survivorship bias, right? And sure. this is kind of that, that that always comes up and there's that 
It's an example so present that I can't believe it's actually become a meme on the internet. The the World War II plane sure. that got like all the bullet holes in it, right? And they would come back, and so they'd keep reinforcing where all right. the bullet holes are before they realized, oh wait, no, we should probably reinforce where there are no bullet holes because that's right. what's making the planes go down. Uh, right? That's the positive piece. That's it's sure. like it's the, sure. the the negative to the photographs. And I think that that's a huge part of it. That's it's really interesting to hear that this is really. It's it's almost crazy to think, oh my gosh, it's 2023 that we're finally talking about comparing the very negative outcomes with the very positive outcomes. But hey, you know what? The, the next, other than right 100 years ago, the next best time is now. So why sure. not start making this a big part of what we discuss? Sure. And I think that that's really a valuable part of the puzzle because, you know, you, you talked about making a decision, how much am I willing to spend to get this data to be able to go to this place, we have so much data to help us make these informed decisions in uncertain circumstances. So why not use all the available data that you have on hand to the best of our ability, right? I know there's limitations on, for example, money and time that sometimes don't allow for us to make those comparisons, but it becomes incredibly valuable. And then the other major element of this is it actually ties into your second question, which was once we figure out kind of what works and what was just also present, is how do we communicate that with people? Yeah. Because that be that's a big part of this as well. We can get all this data, we can talk about the positive pieces, we can talk about the negative pieces, but then how do you translate that into a valuable lesson to what might end up being a very big, diverse group of people? Right. And totally upfront, that is extremely difficult. As it turns out, education, everybody can do it. Not everybody is particularly good at it. And I, I've had many failures in my own life, all of which I hope I have learned from and not just failed uselessly over here, as well as other successes and kind of how we figure that out. Because not everybody thinks kind of quantitatively, not everybody thinks qualitatively, and so the ability to translate some of this, it might not be a matter of looking at this from raw numbers, right? Usually when we sure. talk about risk taking, we talk about probabilities, it's a ratio, right? Or a percentage that we're showing to somebody. And that can get very impersonal and that can make it even harder to make these sorts of lessons possible. And like people don't fit in specific designated boxes that we've made. And I think that the last kind of 20 years of society and culture really taught us that we we know so much more and simultaneously, right, so much less we're learning still about how we define human beings, kind of who we are, how we define gender, sure. for example, has become so much more complex and interesting, really, over the last 20 years than the way we would think about this sure. previously. And within that knowledge translation space, it becomes so much more difficult, right? So for example, Dan, earlier you used the phrase stochastic process. I haven't used that phrase in ages because whenever I tried to use it, people would be like, uh, what? I think I heard that word when I was in college and I was probably yeah. zoning out, right? That's <laughs> So I, I, I talk about probability. I talk about chance. They're free, like, you know, it's phrases you might throw in that are just the same thing, but with yeah. different languages, right? So, so can I give a concrete example that we can maybe yes. translate this over for? Because there, there's two sort of directions that we take this. One is as I'm training and working with my team, and I'm trying to encourage them to make 
high stakes decisions better. I want them to understand how to learn from the game and what the risk profiles are and everything. But maybe an even easier one to talk through is a decision that ER doctors often have to make with their patients, which is in the setting of an acute stroke, do you give this drug TPA, right? So, you know, TPA is a clot-busting drug and has the potential, depending on whose side of what research you read, the general expected thing is that some people it'll make a lot better, a lot of people nothing will happen to, and some people will get worse and a few will die. Right. So the idea is you give this drug to, and my numbers are going to be a little bit off here because yeah. I haven't thought about this in a while. Okay. <laughs> but you take 100 people with a stroke, you give them all TPA, some large number of them, nothing will happen to, some percentage of them will get much better, some percentage will get a little bit worse, and one or two will die, and they'll die pretty horribly. Like it's like, it's not like a, you know, it's a pretty, it's, it could be a bad death depending on how you describe it. And the people that are, needing to make this decision, mm -hmm. right? So as an ER doctor, what I can do is I can say, you're having a stroke. Here's what we think is going on. I can offer you this treatment. Here's the idea of the treatment. Here is what we roughly know about what will happen to a hundred people in your shoes that take this treatment, mm -hmm. right? And this has all the features of a gamble that we've described, right? You have to pay to play. You take the drug or you don't take the drug, right? There's a chance of risk. We don't really know who's going to end up in which camp. And there's a real outcome for it, which is life, death, or permanent disability, right? So this is a gamble that's like a big gamble that you're going to take. We don't really know the best way to help people make this decision, yeah. right? And so usually what we do is we just give them a piece of paper that has a hundred stick figures on it and color some of them different colors. And they're like, these people turn green and these people turn red. What would you like? And you know, what would you like? I want the green. <laughs> exactly right. But so you're, you're helping you're helping people make this decision, them and their families. Sometimes while they're actively having, well, presumably while they're actively having a stroke, and they're maybe not necessarily like, you know, able to really conceive of it the same way. Their family members, even if they're not having a stroke, or even if the family members aren't having a stroke, they're incredibly emotional. This is a high risk situation. Mm -hmm. So, how do we communicate these types of things in a way that's and I realize this is a subtly different question than like communicating about like learning to play the game better. No, no, that's yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a parallel to this in in the gambling field that is colloquially called the Reno model. And it's called that because it came out of a meeting that was held in Reno. So it's sure. very creative, clearly. <laughs> um, but the idea is it's around the concept of responsible gambling, which is a phrase that in some ways is very meaningful, in some ways is totally meaningless, right? Like responsible drinking, what does it actually mean? But that we'll get to that and we can talk about that in a moment. But the idea is, you know, who who's responsible for the decision? It's the underlying concept of this model is that of informed decision making. So same concept. If we teach people how to play the games, kind of the other piece of that question you were asking. Will they then make informed decisions, not just about playing, but also about, for example, how much money they'll spend playing, how sure. much time they'll spend playing, et cetera. So the big question that's associated with it is, who's responsible for responsible gambling? Is it the individual who's playing? So the parallel here would be, is it the person who's potentially going through a stroke at this moment? Sure. What is their capacity for decision making? Does that change kind of the proportion of responsibilities that put more on the doctor to have to be able to make a decision. Yes, we're doing this. It doesn't matter what you say in response. It doesn't matter if I show you a chart with 100 stick figures in red and green. 
I'm still making the decision because at this point I've determined I hold the burden of sure. the majority of decision making. Is it somebody else? Uh, in, in our model, it might include, for example, like a, a lawmaker. It might include public health people who, who do kind of outreach and prevention efforts. In your example, it might include, for example, family members. Sure. Maybe it includes a consulting doctor. Is there somebody else who's an, more of an expert in this particular drug uh-huh. or somebody who deals with strokes more frequently? Here I am totally showing my ignorance on no, self-sterhood. Yeah. It's probably a, a good thing for me to be able to admit that as someone who's not an ER doctor, I luckily have not had to spend a ton of time Phenomenal. in ER. Yeah. But it, it really, it's it's part of that discussion. So who is responsible? And what becomes really interesting in this question in terms of making that decision, right? Because it's two things. One, how do you communicate? And then two, how is the decision made? Because sometimes you communicate the whole thing and then you, Dan, as the doctor, you're still making the decision in the end. Making that responsibility, it's more than just how that might be distributed, right? Who who owns the responsibility in a specific situation, but it also changes based on where you are. So, for example, a lot of the work that we do, it's, it's global, right? And and I don't, do you have an international audience? I don't want to start yep. assuming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Excellent, right? So it's, it can be totally different wherever you are around the world. So in America, for example, North America, I should really say, not not just the U.S., but also Canada tends to be quite similar in terms of how we view our approach to kind of community and individualism and that sort of thing, is that in the end, the patient, they're the ones who have to make the decision. We've provided all the information sure. to them. They make that choice. In other cultures all over the world, it might be different. If you look at cultures that have more of kind of like a, a community-focused, collectivistic is a phrase that's often mm-hmm. used culture, it might be a totally different thing, where you are deferring absolutely as a patient to the doctor who is the authority, who has that control. Japan is a fantastic example of this, where you might defer to the person who's in the very specific role. Korea has a really, a couple of really great examples. I think this example actually ended up in a Malcolm Gladwell book, but it's an example of a plane crash, actually, where because of kind of not just culture, but how communication uh-huh. exists within certain cultures, that there was a plane crash that happened and the the captain who was in charge, right, had a co-pilot who was there, sure. or the, the, the pilot was the superior officer, right? And so the first officer was there and because their means of communication really didn't dictate for a first officer to say, what the actual heck is going on here? Stop, we need to change course. Yeah. This is going to cause a crash, right? When you listen to the tape, it's much more subtle. Have you looked at this over here? I see that this reading is X. It's really much more quiet yeah. and not a very definitive, this is the choice that's going to be made because that choice belongs to the captain. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear. I don't suggest that this is an inferior form of how sure. culture might exist. It's just a different way of, of how right. we communicate and how we think about this, kind of who's responsible for the final decision in the different worlds that we live in. And so I think it's really important when you do these sorts of communications, the, you know, it's an ever-evolving thing. How do we communicate what the odds look like? How do we communicate right. how this feels to you? And then in the end, it's once the, all the information is out there, how is that decision made and who's making it? And that's really where we get into the kind of an it depends situation. Sure. I can tell you there's a... 
There's a big casino company that's, it's global. They have a big presence here in Las Vegas. But one of the things that they do when it comes to communicating odds is they, they play a game with Starburst. So they'll get a bag and they'll put a whole bunch of orange Starburst and one lemon Starburst into the bag, right? And that's how they'll communicate odds, right? So they'll say you have a one in 20 chance of getting the lemon Starburst. Open up the bag, reach it. Which Starburst did you get? And then, you know, you can pour it out and actually see uh-huh. which ones are there. So kind of similar to the green and the red, but with yeah. Starburst. I will note a little bit of levity in this one in the sense that they use the orange and the yellow because when they had the pink and the red, the Starburst tended to disappear more frequently because uh, they would walk away in people's mouths or stomachs or otherwise. Yeah. Huh. So that's why they use the orange and yellow. Yeah. Um, so that certainly makes that it, sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that certainly makes sense when you know what the odds are, mm-hmm. right? When you're able to say like, yeah. yeah, you have a one in 20 chance of of this gamble paying off. Here's some ideas. I think we're often faced with problem sets that are, you know, where we don't know necessarily what the odds are. And we have some data that would suggest the odds are such and such for some people. And those people might or might not be like you. And we don't really know how well you fit into this population. So we don't really know what the odds are for you. This is just sort of, we've taken one slice out of civilization and this is what we're looking at. And that's the type of problem set that we face so routinely in emergencies in part because we don't know the data. And sometimes when we do have the data, it's that it wasn't tested in emergency circumstances. So we don't really know what that means. And we don't really know how well it applies. And you're trying to communicate uncertain things under layers of synergistic layers of uncertainty for that. But you know, you still do some of the best you can. I think what you're saying makes sense, which is that like you still want to understand a little bit about like from this Reno model idea, like who do you think owns the decision and how does that inform how you're communicating? And like, what is your responsibility as the other partners in that decision, even if you're not necessarily the decision owner for it? That's really interesting. You inspired two thoughts for me. The first is, you know, I'm the kind of person where in that situation, I want to be fully informed. I I defer to the expertise of the the expert. I want to know everything that you know and then in the end, I'm minimally the one that's making the uh-huh. choice. Now, usually I'm the one that's making the choice that that's whatever the doctor recommends because that that's sure. the expert view, right? That that's that becomes incredibly important there. And then the other piece of this is it kind of reminds me of so many of these different situations with that who's responsible for it. How do we get into some of those spaces? And I think that that's something that's becomes very important in this space because we're usually not so uncertain in so much of what we do. It was really reminding me of the kind of behavioral economics concepts of nudging, right? And when we do nudging, one of the things that we found to be most effective in terms of messaging is that people respond really well to nudges that are speaking to them. And so we really tried to look for familiar characteristics. So from from our gambling field, right? We we try and use some of these to nudge people in into healthy behavior or nudge people away from unhealthy behavior, depending on the situation. So something like um, one of the healthy gambling behaviors that you might do is setting a limit before you play, whether that's actually using a device to say, okay, stop me after I spend 
$200, whether that's saying in your head, okay, I'm going to spend $200 and that's it. And then you go and you're gambling and you spend $200 and you get up and walk away, right? In terms of messaging to get people to do this, because a lot of people do it naturally, but sometimes it can be helpful to have that information present, is to say, you know, like find a characteristic that's similar to that person. So it's a targeted message. Did you know that men in their early 40s usually set a limit of about $200? Something like that, right? Those are the sorts sure. of things where you, where you would say, hey, that's like me. I should set a limit of about $200. Yeah. That sounds good to me. I'm going to do that. that. That's something that I feel like I can afford. Now, it might get more and more sure. nuanced, right? So usually when this sorts of nudges are being used, it's because we have a lot more information in the situation. So maybe there's an account that somebody's using and they're logged in while they're, say, gambling online, right? So we know not just their their age and, and maybe uh -huh. their, their, their gender, but maybe we also know kind of what their average bet is whenever sure. they're playing. We know kind of what they're depositing and what they're withdrawing. So we might not say, hey, did you know that men in their early 40s usually yeah. set a limit of about 200? We might be able to say, oh, hey, men in their early 40s usually pay a bet or usually have an average bet size of about $5. Or maybe they, they set a limit of $150 because based on what we know about your account, that's a, a more realistic and safer, if you will, a match for you to gamble. And so the idea of having all of these layers becomes really difficult because it just means we're still in constant data collection mode. How do you make a choice? How do you give that nudge yeah. if you don't know enough about the individual or you don't have enough other data about similar individuals? And so then it's a matter of trying to pull all of that together. Now, I, I would assume that when you are an ER doctor and you are in like in your flow state, you are ready to go, you are making these decisions on the spot, you're not necessarily able to access every single study maybe that you read on this very specific problem immediately out of your brain, right? It's, it's a very abnormal human trait to be able to pull information that quickly, that accurately out of your brain in the moment while you're making the decision, especially in a life or death moment. Right. And I think that that's an area where <laughs> the, our massively evolving technological world mm -hmm. is so valuable. And it's a combination. You know, we see the, these discussions on AI, right? And, and kind of in the academic world, the chat GPT thing has become such a huge discussion because, oh my God, what if my entire class just writes in the chat GPT? Here's the prompt, write an essay. And then I have no idea if my student actually wrote this or if ChatGPT wrote this, right? But at the same time, these sorts of systems have the potential for good, right? We, we have all this technology and they, we, we get a lot of fear elements that come into things yeah. like media and culture. We don't need to go down that road, but you know, I think we agree that's present. <laughs> but there's so many opportunities for the value of these sorts of things. And to have that kind of information present can be incredibly valuable. I don't know how present that is for when you're in the position, right? How, it also needs to be easy. And I don't know how easy we've made it to access. I assume all the information's there. So much data has been gathered over the last 20 years. And then it's a matter of, can you get it? Just because yeah. it's there doesn't mean it's easily gettable yeah. in the moment. I mean, I think you're. I think you're breaking down the problem really effectively, which is that you you know have uncertainty stacked on top of uncertainty with a side of uncertainty, and you're 
you know, splitting the problem into do we know the data? Can we access the data? Can we access the data correctly just in time for when we need it in order to support decision making and support communication around decision making? And there are so many holes in that chain of thought that yeah. it's just all over the place. So this actually wraps up nicely because it brings it a little bit full circle, right? So let's let's say you're in a we'll call it a, a crisis moment, right? There, there's a major event happening. You have to make a decision. You're pretty sure you know the information. The information is in a database somewhere, right? There are people who have gone through this problem and the decision could potentially be made, but it's not necessarily top of mind while you're in this decision-making moment. So back to that definition of gambling, right? What is the cost to participate? And here it might be time. How much time are you willing to spend typing the potential issue into your phone or whatever device you might use to access that information? Are you typing into the the computers that I know you guys wheel around in in a hospital setting? How much time does that take to type in? And that cost to participate, how much time does the person have to quote unquote sacrifice while you figure that out? Or do you need to go based on what you think you remember or truly do remember? I don't want to undermine everybody's memory here, right? And then make that decision in the moment. That's your cost to participate. Your chance is involved in that uncertain outcome, right? There's a probability it will be successful. There's a probability it won't be successful. And then, of course, the potential prize, right? In this case, maybe life. Life is that big prize. Maybe a smaller prize might be life with a certain amount of recovery period. And then the major loss, because there's always a potential loss associated when we talk about gambling and risk-taking, is, of course, the debt side sure. about a life or death situation. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great that's a great summary of bridging it. And it's awesome to bridge that back to like the first thing we talked about. And that's <laughs> yes, you know, full pr- circle. <laughs> yeah. I just thank you so much for for joining all of this. But just before there's like so many other threads and so many other directions to go from here exploring this and this, you know, this this domain of uncertainty and decision making under uncertainty is such a fascinating space to to keep exploring. But before we uh, before we sign off here, an opportunity for you. Do you want to challenge folks listening to this podcast? Right? What do you want them to do differently tomorrow? No matter what their their field is, and as as you think about them performing under pressure, think about risk. Think about what you're doing and how it might be gambling in the way that I've defined it, right? So when you start to define gambling, risking something of value on an outcome that's uncertain. Human beings take risks in their everyday lives. And at the same time, risky behavior has the potential to lead to great success. And it also has the potential to lead to problematic behavior. Uh, And with gambling... We, we can't really invoke these now immortal words, right? When the Supreme Court was talking about pornography and um, Supreme Court Justice at the time, Potter Stewart, has these famous words. He's describing his threshold test for hardcore porn. I know I, I, I'll not today attempt to define the kinds of material, but I know it when I see it. And we can't really do that with gambling. It's not just a matter of knowing it when you see it. So... When we went through kind of the examples that I talked about, when we talked about what can happen kind of in an ER and and where the concepts of cost to participate, chance and prize show up, what, you know, what did you see? Is there always a cost to participate in the things that you do in everyday life? Is there always chance involved? And is there always a prize to be won or potentially lost? And so in that sense, 
is what you're doing gambling, right? And then more importantly than this very broad definition of what it is, how might gambling matter for what you do in your everyday life? Really cool. This is a great challenge. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much for inviting me. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right. Good luck out there.